Hello, hello, and welcome back to Journey of a Fearless Female. I'm your host, Paola Rosser, and this week my guest is Iman. She's a certified grief recovery specialist, transformational speaker, and best-selling author. She works with people to help them recover from grief and trauma, elevate their self-esteem, deepen their authenticity, and step fully into the greatness they were born for. Born and raised in Edmonton, Alberta, Iman's parents moved to Canada from Tunisia, North Africa, and she's extremely proud of her Arab heritage and and the opportunity her parents gave her by immigrating to Canada to raise her their family. Iman's decision to become a grief recovery specialist was inspired by her own experience of living with traumatic loss just two months before her seventh birthday. She witnessed her father brutally murder her mother. From that moment, Iman effectively became an orphan as her father was sentenced to 25 years in prison. This is her fearless female journey, and I am excited to have Iman on the podcast. Welcoming Iman. I actually found Iman on TikTok. She uh, posted the most heartfelt, moving TikTok. I mean, I was crying with you. Um, so I'm so excited that you responded and that you're here to tell your story. Thank you so much. Yeah, that's crazy that we met that way because that video, you know, I just, you know, TikTok's so funny, but I, that week I had my Metro UK article come out where I was hired to write an article about like how we sort of glamorize uh, um, serial killers and things mm -hmm. like that. And so I was saying how in my experience as the daughter of a murderer, I really don't think we should do that. I think we should speak about, you know, empowering the victims and, and make it a little bit like, I understand people are interested, but a little bit more about the people who survived those kind of things and the people who are traumatized by them. And so I did that 30 second TikTok and then there you were and so many people have reached out and I'm like, wow, you know, it's just in those moments that you don't expect anything that the major things, you know, like great connections come from. Exactly. It was such a moving TikTok. It, and you said like 30 seconds can really grab you and make you feel the same emotions that you were feeling. And so my inner child was hugging your inner child. Aww. And I was just kind of like, she needs to be on my podcast. So tell us from the beginning how everything started and what you're doing today. Sure. So as you said, in my bio, you know, my family came from Tunisia, North Africa, and they wanted to have a better life for, you know, their family. I think they were on an adventure seeking, you know, they went to France and my father went to a chef school and then he became a chef and he had my eldest brother and then they moved to Ontario, Canada, had another boy. And everyone always says how much my mother wanted a girl. Like she was just like, seriously, they, they make it a big thing. Like she would cry when she had a boy, which I feel bad for my brothers, but <laughs> she was so excited, you know, in the, in 81 when she had a girl and I didn't get to have her for very long because, you know, life was a bit hard for her. She had, been in this abusive relationship my father was really really just quite a menacing man and the children we would witness a lot of the violence that he would inflict on her and my brothers and so uh, she had separated from him because he was cheating on her and she found out and so she asked him to leave and honestly when I look back about fearless talk about you know a woman who didn't speak English didn't have a job in her life you know she didn't have her own income and she didn't even have a driver's license. Like she asked this man to leave her home. And I thought that, wow, that takes a lot of courage. So she got her license. She was going back to learning English in school, like in, in, a, in a program. And, you know, my father had the key to our house because she said that, you know, he could come whenever he wanted. Like she didn't want him to feel like she was taking his children. And I think she, she was obviously afraid of him. Yeah. And 
So he would come and go as he pleased. And so in the middle of the night, you know, he'd come and eat after work and he would leave the fridge open. He would make a mess in the kitchen. He would just spoil all the food and just be a jerk. And that was kind of becoming the new normal, unfortunately. We'd wake up and the house is like in a you know, disaster and he was just a, not a nice guy. And I was sleeping in my mom's bed when he left because I was like, she's my like, we were so, so close. I was very, very shy as a little kid. And so as soon as he moved out, I was like, brought all my teddy bears to my mom's bed, you know. And so that night, it was in late June, and I had fallen asleep. And then my mom came to bed after and fell asleep. And the door opened in the middle of the night, and the light turned on. And I thought, I woke up, and I saw my father standing there. And I thought, oh, crap, like, he's home. I got to move. So I just sort of, like, <laughs> pooched closer to my mother to see if I could be in the middle, maybe, you know, like, get away with this. And um, he turned off the light. He shushed me. And I thought, oh, you know, don't wake up your mother kind of thing. But because it was one of those bright summer, like early summer nights, I think it was the first day of summer. And my eyes adjusted to the dark. And I saw that he was holding a butcher's knife. It was seconds. It feels like milliseconds. But he just started stabbing her. And it was horrifying. I mean, people always ask, six years old, they say, like, you probably don't remember. And I'm like, listen. I remember every one of those seconds and it's a nightmare. And yeah, so he, he, he stabbed her to death and he ran away and I was just shocked. It's like, if anyone's ever been in any kind of horribly adrenalized like situation, I fro- like my body froze. It's like you go numb and, you know, people talk about deafening silence. Yeah. And it was so loud while she was obviously, you know, screaming for her life. And then it was so quiet. It was very painful. It was mm. a very painful silence. And then all of a sudden, like I could feel something shift in my body really and truly like it's like those weird holy moments, like very divine moments where you just know, like I just knew I was only six. I just knew you're not going to be the same like this, you know, even telling you that like my whole body gets chills because it was like a knowingness of like you don't understand as a as a as a child doesn't understand like what's happening, but my soul really felt something shift that I had to just know more and um, that nothing was going to be the same. So then all of a sudden, all the lights and the neighborhood, you know, we lived in this cul-de-sac, and it was so I remember feeling humiliated. Mm. It's like the worst moment of your life, and strangers are looking at you. Yeah. And- all the lights came on. Everyone's like running out of their house because the sirens, there's like police and fire trucks. Like it's the ambulance. Like it's weird. Right. So yeah. who called 911? My eldest brother. So while he was 15 at the time. And so while my mother is like fighting for her life, my eldest brother woke up and he yeah. ran in and he tried to grab my father's arm and my father flung him like, like nothing to see someone with that rage i've never seen it again thank goodness but he flew he my brother flew like i've never seen anything like it and he made it look like he was throwing like a a towel you know like it was just like wow like he just flew and hit the railing like hit this and then um he ran and and called the police thank goodness he knew what to do in an emergency because i sure didn't yeah, well, you were six years old. Oh, I know, but you know, you're <laughs> and you just have like this crazy yeah. traumatic experience. And 
I can't even imagine, like you said, we do glorify the serial killers and people are so um, wanting to know crime and like what happened and everything, but they don't see what the catastrophe is left over, you know, and the children that have to endure this. And it's not something that you just, oh, it happened when I was six years old and now I'm all better. It's what? trauma that sticks in your cells. Yes. It stays everything that I do. I cannot extract that experience from it. It's everything. It's in everything. Exactly what you said in yourselves. It's, I think a lot of times we like to compartmentalize. That makes things sound so nice and tidy. Like, oh, even when people have a mental illness, you know, like I have complex post-traumatic stress disorder from the trauma that I endured, not just the horrible, you know, witnessing of my mother's murder, but then I had to live in foster care. Yeah. And that was horrifying. It was absolutely the worst experience. And unfortunately, it's a common experience. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that experience about how, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that immediately he was arrested and taken and now it's just you and your brothers and your oldest brother was 15. So it wasn't like he could take responsibility for you guys. Right. Right. So, yeah. So I have a, another brother that's the middle child and he was you know, nine or, mm. or 12. Yeah. So how old is he's or he's five years older than me. So, yeah. So he, he was just sleeping and it's so sad because we all have our own different versions of that night. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, his is, he woke up without a mother, you know, and mm. he, it's so sad. Like it's just so many people, my eldest brother wasn't strong enough. Right. And his, yeah. perspective, he wasn't able to save his mother. Then the middle one didn't wake up. That's yeah. other trauma. Right. Yeah, exactly. And there's me where I'm like, okay, I was too small to do anything, but at the same time, like I had to see the whole thing and it was just awful for everyone. So we're, yeah, that night. So then he ran off and there's just so many things that are like mysterious about it. Like he went, he took off, he went to a corner store. He took all his clothes off and threw everything in the dumpster. And then like, there was a car waiting for him to this day. I don't know who this car is. And he gets in and it's like, it's, it's moving while he gets in because there was a witness because our love, luckily the nosy neighbor, if you're a nosy neighbor, <laughs> you keep doing you. Yeah. <laughs> this nosy neighbor was watching everything and, yeah. and she was going to get cigarettes or something from the store. So she was like, Oh, there's my neighbor. And she was like following him. And she goes, why is he running? And what's going on? And he's covered in blood. What the heck? You know, she's putting it together. And then she said he jumped into a movie vehicle, like with his underwear on, like just, and then he broke into my aunt and uncle's apartment, like climbed up wow. three, three balconies, climbed up, broke in, and then pretended to be sleeping on the couch. So then my brother, the police asked him, you know, is there anyone, you know, around here? Right. Cause like, they don't know who to call for us to be safe. And um, immediately our next door neighbor took us inside, but like it was, you know, gave me, I remember she, she gave me, you know, a pajama, like a shirt of hers. Like she took off my shirt, my nightgown, which was obviously just horrible. I can't imagine what these people saw in me. Yeah, I'm sure I gave them nightmares. So my aunt, we, the, the police go to her house and they say, can we come in? Is there anyone here? And my uncle and Sandra are thinking, no, like we were sleeping. It's two in the morning. And they said, well, can we just take a look? And thank goodness, because my father was sleep, like pretending to sleep on the couch. Wow. So he had like premeditated it and had yeah. it all planned out. Yes, because the nosy neighbor 
Yeah. I, I love her. Like I, I'm trying to find her actually. <laughs> I want to <laughs> say thank you, you know, because I got the police report when I was writing my memoir and there she was the hero in the story because she was always smoking outside. And yeah. she, she said for a week before she saw him in his car out front of our house and he would time himself going from his car unlocking the door and he kept looking at his watch and seeing how fast it took him to open wow. unlock the door and lock it it was very strange like so she thought he was weird like because he just looked strange so because there was nobody that they could call for you or like on your side of the family or whatever did did you go straight into foster care so my aunt was my mother's sister so she was the, the house that he broke into and so we stayed with her for that, like for sure, for a few nights. And mm-hmm. then my, because you're not, you're not guilty until you're proven guilty. Even though there's so much evidence proving, right? Yeah. It's paperwork really. And so they held him for over a year before he was sentenced in that mm. time. He still was my guardian. Mm. So he got to choose a house for me to stay in, which was his friend's house. And really? Yeah. And so for over a year, I was in this house without my brothers because he didn't own this. Like my brothers are like teenage, you know, 12 and 15 or whatever. And he didn't care so much about where they went. They had friends. They stayed with friends and um, both of them like in the same house. And then um, I was with this family by law. I had to stay with this family and it was they treat me like a, a dog. Like they. Yeah. Um, they made me sleep on the floor, literally in the like downstairs by the front door like a dog. Oh. So sad. It is. And you're so separated from your the only other family that you know that you makes you feel safe, your brothers. And now you're like in this home. I can't even imagine how your inner child processed um, all of this. Yeah, very interesting. You know, I think for the you know, I read the police report. I don't really remember this part about the it said like for a few days I didn't speak. I just held a picture mm-hmm. of my mother and cried and stared at the wall. And I think like when I read that, my something in my heart broke. Like I was like, what? Oh, man, that little girl, you know? And sometimes when I think back, I think of it separately a little bit. You can hear me talk about it like someone else a little bit because it's so that's what you have to do sometimes to survive this kind of experience. You know, you have to like, okay, that was that time. That was me. That was my version of me then. And then there's different versions of me so that I could keep evolving and I surviving. How do you feel like the system failed you? I mean, this is a a question that is so powerful because it's intricate. I understand, like, as an adult, I understand. I've worked with a lot. I have a lot of friends that are social workers. I understand why it breaks down. But when Mm -hmm. you're in it, it's so painful because the system is supposed to protect children. And in order to do that, though, you need to you need to take care of the adults. And the problem, one of the problems that I find is that they don't make sure the adults are well enough. So you have these dysfunctional homes and people blame the kids a lot. You know, a lot of pressure put on me, to be honest, to be regulated and healthy and mentally well. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, like focus on yourself because I don't have it. You know, like focus on yourself. Like, because I'm a kid, you're supposed to know better, not not me. And so a lot of times, even I was just speaking to someone, a uh, psychologist the other day, like that the kids are the ones that they go, oh, you're not acting right. They got to go to rehab. They got to get drugs. You know, like they give kids medicine that makes them less defiant. Right. And then, 
you got to get to the root of why they're acting like that. And you got to, I think there should be programs for the, the foster parents, right? So that like everyone goes to therapy. The parents should have to go to therapy. The parents should be the ones you're really looking at their psychology. You, you know, those are the people you should be focusing on because the kids will respond to you. If I were, and that's why I have complex post-traumatic stress disorder, as opposed to without the complex part, because then I was abused for a decade. It's not, if, if, if it was like happy ending where, okay, this horrible tragedy, and then this beautiful family took me in and loved me up and, and healed, helped me heal. I wouldn't have this problem. Like a lot of my problems I wouldn't have. So were you, you had to stay with your uh, father's friend for 10 years? No, for over a year. So then my aunt and uncle who had that apartment that was broken into, they were like, okay, we're going to take these kids. Okay. We're going to get them. So then I'm with them and then they go, oh man, like, nah, too hard. Three kids. Yeah. Right. So part of me, I get why it would be too hard. Cause you have like, they had one kid of their own. Now they got four kids. I get it. Um, part of me understands that as an adult, as a kid, when your own aunt and uncle, or your mother's sister rejects you and, and then leaves the country, like then they decide to move back to Africa. Like it's one thing for me to contemplate, like, okay, it was too much to have three extra kids. I get that. Why don't you stay nearby so you can make sure we're good to be the only living relative I have. And then to flee the country to like ditch us in the system for me, I have a hard time. I still have a hard time with that. I don't, I don't get that because you couldn't pull me away from my nieces and nephews. Exactly. It, I think now that we get older and we've experienced trauma, we don't understand how adults like, you know, yeah, how they like managed. But at the same time, like when you think back to like the 80s and the 90s, mental health wasn't something big. It wasn't definitely, definitely never went to therapy. You never read a book about self-help and you definitely didn't like we're never self-aware or, um, you know, you never really realized that you were carrying traumas from generations past. So I think a lot of people just dealt with the way, with their emotions, the way they knew how, which is to shut down or freeze or like leave like the country just so they don't have to deal with it. Right. Um, and it's sad because now we have a generation of children who are like, Hey, I, I need to be seen. I need to be heard and I need to be loved. And I need the safe space to be able to express my emotions. And there's so much that happened to you. And I can't even imagine the loneliness that you felt. This episode is sponsored by CoachSnap. Are you looking for an all-in-one platform to help you build your coaching business? Then you need CoachSnap. It allows you to schedule appointments, collect payments, train and support all of your clients' needs. Health, fitness, hockey, football, or even life coaches can use CoachSnap. It's the business platform that will help you be the best coach you can be. Tell me a little bit more about like how you handled grief, because obviously as a child, this is a new experience, a new feeling in your body. How did you handle grief? That's a great question. How do you handle grief as a kid? You know, I, it's so interesting because children inherently want to believe the adults around them because we don't have the skills we think you know what you're doing right and (laughs) anyone who has kids can attest like I know my daughter looks at me like I'm the queen of the world right and um she always asks me all these questions like as if I know everything I'm like I don't know everything but um when I was a kid it was interesting because when you said people don't know how to deal with grief so I had all these adults that were shutting down and avoiding the grief 
and they didn't want to talk about my mother and I wasn't allowed to cry about my mother. People were constantly like, Iman, oh my God, like get over it. Like it's, you're upsetting everyone. And so as a child, you just start to learn to become a chameleon and only give people the parts of you that are acceptable. And Mm. I think that's how you create a really great people pleaser and a high achiever, right? So I only, I became aware that I am uncomfortable for people. My life yeah. is uncomfortable. I am, I'm not soothing. Yeah. Like your emotions are too much for people to handle. So you're like, I'm not going to express them. That's right. You're too much. So what we do, you know, in grief recovery, there's this term like short-term energy relieving behaviors. There's these things you do. Everyone does them when you have that energy because grief is a, is a natural reaction to loss, right? Mm. So we're supposed to, we're supposed to feel grief. That's a good sign that you're healthy. When yeah. you don't know what to do with that energy because no one taught you, you drink too much. Some people have sex about it. Some people smoke about it. Some people shop about it, spend money about it. Some people work about it. Some people work out about it. Some people yeah. veg out about it, right? So there's a lot of weird ways that we do things that some of them look great. Oh, wow. She's a yeah. really hard worker. Oh, wow. <laughs> she likes to read, you know? Yeah. So I, I became obsessed with literature. Thank goodness. But I, in the bad habits, I, I started smoking. I was like 11 or 12. I started mm. drinking. I stole from my, my foster family that I ended up with for the longest was the most abusive, dysfunctional people. They were, there would be crackheads smoke, snort, smoking crack in the bathroom. There was prostitutes in my house. There was drug. Wow. Like I would be hanging out with drug dealers and their kids. And there'd be all these little poor babies dirty diapers hanging off them and there was no food these people starved me beat me oh my gosh Um, and how does the social worker not see that like when they go and do visits or do they not do their regular visits so we moved I went to 10 schools in 12 years and I mean those were all most of the most of them were in the foster care right so I think part of it is I got lost in there people I know for a fact for three years, nobody checked on, not once. And that was because I, the reason I knew that was because I was already, they kicked me out on the street, kept collecting checks and not, nobody noticed. And I was like, the, to feel so invisible your whole life is, it's like, it's crushing to, you know, to think like the people, all these people failed me. And when you're a kid, I never thought that, that even saying that my voice cracks, like, you kids don't think like that. Kids don't think you're failing me. You know, they think there's something wrong with me. I'm broken. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That makes me eyes water up. I know it makes my heart yeah. hurt because like, I feel, I feel how you feel, you know, cause I, you know, I grew up in an abusive home. So I know the feeling of that child mm-hmm. that that's why I connected so much with uh, your TikTok because it's like, it's sad. It's sad that like, yes, adults have failed the child. And yes, when you're a child, you don't think, oh, the adults are failing. You think I'm failing. Like you said earlier, your emotions were too much. And like when my dad passed away, I remember um, being at work and they would tell me, you need to knock it off already. You know what I mean? Like you need to stop crying at your desk and it's like, get it together. Right, it's like, get God, it together for who? right. And you're just kind of like, I wish if I could turn the switch off, I wish I could do this, but it's like, 
the grief, the emotions, the trauma, you have to process it. And if someone doesn't give you the safe space to process these emotions, like you said, you go for the things that are the easy fix, the band-aid, the alcohol, the sex, the drugs, the smoking, the shopping, the eating, the excessive working out or working like there's all these things that we do to try to get ourselves back into alignment. And before everything happened as children, we are all in alignment with our heart and our head and our, you know, spirit. And then when trauma happens, it's like, we've, it's like a bomb, a grenade just set off inside your soul. And you're just trying your hardest to put all the pieces back together. And when you're surrounded by adults who they themselves are still in their, you know, in their war zone yeah. and they have letting grenades go off. It's like, what are you do? Yeah. You know? So yeah. how, how did you finally, like what, when you finally exited the foster system? So, yeah. So while I was a child, I just became a chameleon. I'm doing everything that I can to stay alive. And I also started hating myself pretty bad. So I had a pretty low self-esteem I was hanging out with the wrong crowd. I was doing things that I wasn't proud of. And I just hated myself. Like to say that I hate myself, like I mean it. I used to hate, like it was a very strong word and a very strong feeling. Um, yeah. Because all the signals I got were pretty echoing that it, I was not good. And mm. like certainly God can't love you because, right? People are like, oh, you know, God has a plan. I'm like, what? I'd love to know the freaking blueprint to that plan, man. It's like, let me in on right. the pages. If you could just shoot me a little, like, let me know, that'd be cool. Um, You're like, well, this so far, God's plan is not that great. Yeah, you know, like, yeah, <laughs> it's like, okay, right. Like, what kind of faith do you want me to have? But, um, and ironically, that's what my name means is faith. And so, and it's like, like my mother is kind of just a sidebar. She named me a different name when I was born. So she named me Shehia, which means like a super deep craving, like an intense desire because she mm. wanted a girl so bad. And then oh. she had a dream when she was, I was born. She already told everybody my name was Shehia. And then she had a dream that this man came to her and said, your daughter's, your daughter is your craving, but she's not Shehia. Her name is Iman, which means faith in God. And she, Ooh. she will need your, her faith more than she needs your desire. And wow. she woke up freaked out. My mom was superstitious. She thought, oh my God, I, I begged for a girl. God gave me a girl. And now I'm going to like something bad going to happen to her if I don't change her name. So then she changed it to Amen because like, then she just wanted to follow the, this dream she had. And it's very interesting. It's like very, my mother was very intuitive and, and so am I. And so is my daughter. It's so cool. You know, this kind of. And the, the the desire that she she had for me, I have for her. It's like this mm. soulmate connection that like I, the love that I, she gave to me, which by the way, the first seven years of a child's life are the most developmentally yes. important. I couldn't ask for a better gift because she showed me what it means to be loved. Mm. And I never, nothing else ever felt right. To be treated poorly didn't feel right. Yeah, You know, so like I believed to a certain degree that I was bad, but there was not all the way because I knew that there was a love that I had once and that like, yeah. little light. You had experienced it. Yeah. And I looked, that's all I ever wanted again. Right. So as an adult, I get like spit out 18. I don't know who I am, what to do. I just know, thank goodness I made it. I remember looking in the mirror on my 18th birthday being like, oh my God, we did. Like, I never thought I would get to it. I thought I'm going to die every day. I was like, this is a horrible, horrible life. Like, I don't want to be here. 
And so when yeah. I turn 18, it's like, that's the freedom. When you're a foster kid, that's the freedom ticket. You can't wait to be no one's like, no one owns you anymore. It's like, you. Get so what's the process that they, because, you know, I've watched a lot of documentaries where they just basically come with black trash bags and they're like, okay, you got to go. Yeah. So pretty much when I moved home, uh, a car would show up with my stuff already in the car. And I have this, this teddy bear that I have, my mom bought for me. I still have this one. I have like three teddy bears that my mom bought me that I thank God I have nothing of hers barely. And um, I would see my teddy bear snowball, this big fluffy white thing in the backseat of a car. And I knew like, y'all are going to take me somewhere else now, aren't you? Like, okay, it's time to go. And you know, so grief recovery is all about learning how to say goodbye. And it's like, mm. I can't think of a better career for myself to be honest because I'm like a professional at saying goodbye I've had to say goodbye to so many people and so many opportunities and so many things and so many dreams so then when you're 18 like so when I got kicked out of my foster home uh, for standing up for myself and um, for the first time in my life I I like I used to just get hit and I never I never hit back and I don't know what happened that day but my foster mom raised her arms to me like she's gonna hit me and I just like grabbed her wrists and I don't know it wasn't a conscious choice my hands were like we're fighting and, um, <laughs> I just grabbed her and all of a sudden you could tell I was stronger than her and she couldn't get out of my grip so she gave me three days notice to get out of her house and thank goodness like I have this guardian angel that I call my dad and his name is Ron and he they called him and said you know we're throwing her on the street we don't want her she's trash you can have her or whatever he was like, mm. a family friend that was just always so kind to me. He bought me my school shoes and he would buy me supplies. Like he was so kind. He knew one time I didn't have a bed. He bought me a bed. Nice guy. So he came, called me. Hey, I heard you don't have a house. I go, yeah, I guess. I'm saying like holding my suitcase. Like, I don't know how to live on the street, but I'm going to learn. And he goes, I'm going to come and get you. Do you and he goes, you want to live with me? And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, yes. This guy I had loved my whole life. And I used to dream about being a kid that had a dad like that, you know, because he was like happy and loving and successful. And he was just like normal, like what I would imagine normal would be like what every kid deserves. So, so I got to live with him and thank goodness I got three years to live with him and he helped me. He said, look, they're not going to care about you. When you turn 18, that's it. The world gets colder. And I got, I thought colder than it's been like <laughs> I can't live anymore if that's yeah you're like I've been in Antarctica how cold can it get yeah, from here like oh my god yeah I'm already in Canada man what do you want <laughs> so, so he said listen you need to go to school you need to do something so that you can focus because you're gonna have a harder time than everybody else and you know I didn't get it at the time he's talking about privilege and he's trying to tell me you don't have much you know, aside from being a healthy, able-bodied, beautiful person in a country that is, you know, first world. Other than that, babe, you know, you're going to have a tougher time than your friends. And he's so he said, like, pick something, anything. So I said, OK, I'll go to college. I'll become a travel agent. I'll travel the world. We'll see what happens. And so I did that and realized I still hate myself, you know. So I went to therapy I enrolled. I just thought like it was very humbling. And I say that like I didn't want to. I didn't grow up with anyone going to therapy except for me. I was the the troubled person that had to be in therapy all the time. And the one whose brain was, you know, everyone made fun of my brain, not knowing I had ADHD and CPTSD makes it, you know, easy for people to like judge you on how hard life is in school. 
and then you go home and you're starved and like assaulted it made it hard to be normal and successful but um so I just decided one day like I couldn't take it anymore and I just was like I gotta go to therapy like properly like I gotta like because it was disjointed as a child we move it a lot and so I I got three jobs so I could afford it because it's pretty expensive to go to therapy yeah and I just hustled like I asked every everyone I, I could work with that would try. I was like a guinea pig. I was like, do it. Yeah. You know, you want to learn how to be a better psychiatrist. You should try me. Like do it on me. Like do whatever <laughs> you need. I need to know myself between that and fitness, to be honest, because you have to let the energy out. Yeah. Talking's not enough. And so, and then you got to change things in your life and start to act right. Like the way that you aligned with yourself. Mm-hmm. So I started to do that and I realized, oh man, life's getting easier. Like I could feel, I could think clearer. I could make decisions. I could do things that wasn't so painful yeah. to be alive. Was the voice of telling yourself that you hate yourself or that you're not good enough, did it start to lessen? Well, it lessened, but the more important thing was that I realized it wasn't my voice. I thought it was me telling in my head, like, <laughs> you know, but I was like, no, that's, that's my abuser's voice. Like when I stopped to listen to it, I was like, no, that's my foster parent. Yeah, that's not mine. And I was like, and that she's not very smart. So I'm not going to believe you anymore. And I still hear that voice sometimes. And it's, it's like stuff gets, you know, ingrained in you. And whenever I'm having a hard time or something's hard or I'm having a rough go, that woman's voice still in my head. And I can't tell you how much I would like to have nobody else's voices in my head, but that critic, my inner critic became her. And so when I knew that I took the power away a bit, you know, because I was like, wait a minute, that's not me. That's you and you're dumb. So I'm not going to take your advice. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So now what, what would you say to somebody who has a friend who's experiencing grief? Like, what would you tell them to do and not do? Like, let's say your friend just lost their mom or their dad or their brother. And and like you said earlier, it's like people don't want to be around grief. Right. They don't, you know, they don't want to be next to the person who's crying and sad and, yeah. and feeling all these emotions. They don't want to be around that. But yeah. yet grief is so isolating. But at the same time, it's the time when you need the most comfort. Yeah. And you just said the answer. So be uncomfortable with your friend. Stop being so entitled to comfort. I find it very interesting how entitled people have this right to comfort in their mind. They're like, I'm supposed to be, that's uncomfortable. I don't like it. That's uncomfortable. Well, too bad. Because yeah. some of us, I've been uncomfortable since the day I can remember. And, like <laughs> right? people act like it's some kind of like like priv- like or like a right, and it's it's a privilege. When yes. you're comfortable, be grateful. But when you're doing anything worthwhile, you're uncomfortable, aren't you? You're starting mm-hmm. a new project. You get married. You have every journey that is worthwhile will demand your discomfort. So. Yeah. People need to, honestly, I want to slap it out of people's heads sometimes. I'm like, you need to stop acting like you're supposed to be comfortable. I don't know Mm. who is telling you this nonsense. So when you see someone who's uncomfortable in a bad way, in regards to a sadness, a grief, a loss, sit with them. That's how you ease someone's discomfort. You sit with them and you go, I don't know what to say. I don't have anything for you that's going to make this better. But do you want my company? Because I'll suffer with you and I'll hold some of that suffering for you and with you. Yeah. That is how you can show up for people. You, you want to avoid saying things like anything that diminishes the grief. Okay. 
So a lot of times you hear people you go to a funeral and you go, I'm so sorry for your loss. He was a good man and God has a plan. No, he doesn't. Stop talking about God's plan. Okay, unless you were in that board meeting, you need to shut it. Yeah. So don't tell people, you know how they feel. Like saying things like, I know how you feel. My uncle died. No, you don't. You don't know how I feel. Because as soon as you say that, what does it make you feel? Less seen, right? Yeah. Like, oh, now my feelings are your feelings. Oh, okay, great. I guess I'm not as unique as I thought I was because I felt like really alone. So yeah. when someone feels lonely, give them that. You can say, you're. I won't leave you. You're not alone. Yeah. But I can't imagine how it feels to be you. And you know what? This is unfair. And you don't deserve to have this sadness. But I'm here. Yeah. I'm here holding you. I'm not going to let you down. So let people, because when people hear that, when they hear like, you're, I'm allowed, no one's telling them that. <laughs> Guarantee. No, you're the only one. And so that feels like comfort because everyone else is going, well, they're in a better place. Are they? Do you really think my mother was in a better place than being with her kids? I don't think so. And telling a six-year-old, like for my example, that my mother's better off now or that I'm somehow should be happy that she's in a better place is very damaging, very harmful. Yeah, because then you think, so then I'm not her safe space. Right. And what about me? Oh, no one cares about you. We're just the, the overall plans working out, though. You know, you're like, what? And you're like, I'm six years old. <laughs> you know where my your mother should be when you're six? Right beside you, boo. Yeah. Right? Like my daughter's almost five. Yeah, I'm right beside her. That's exactly. not happening. You know, so I think the don't look away. Don't look away. If I'm looking at something hideous and you, you think it's hideous too, just let me know. Ooh, this is hard. Ooh, I can't imagine. This is awful. That's what I want to hear when I'm sad is like venting, you know, like this sucks. Yes. I just want people to listen. I just want to have a safe space yeah. to say what I want to say without judgment mm -hmm. or shame or guilt. And just let me or fixing. express the emotions. Right. Right. No finding the pot of gold, you know, and it's so interesting. Witness yourself for everyone listening and watching, like witness yourself the next time you have a crappy day. And you tell someone who says, oh, well, you know, they might have been having a bad day or, you know, look at the bright side, you know, look how it makes you feel. You'll feel shame. You'll feel silent. You'll quiet up because, you know, now you can't share because this person is just going to keep sticking up for the lady at Safeway or the grocery store that was rude to you. <laughs> you're like, they're like, maybe they were having a bad day. I always find those people so annoying. I'm like, or maybe I'm just allowed to be grumpy for a minute because that's the energy that needs to go. And if you don't let me leave it here with you, if you're not strong enough or willing, I'm going to go drink about it, smoke about it, watch TV about it. I'm going to go. I have to put it somewhere. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So obviously you, your dad went to jail and my father, my father. There, your father, and there had to be some forgiveness there in order for you to process your healing. Do you think it's necessary to have forgiveness? No, nope. You do not have to forgive. That's another one of those, like, feel better. <laughs> you don't have to, because I'll tell you why. I happen to have forgiven my father. Mm -hmm. Forgiveness is an acceptance of the event that occurred. Mm. It is not a condoning of the event. It is not a, oh, yeah, see why you did that. I can understand. No, I don't understand why crazy people kill people. I don't know anything about that. I accept that that's what happened, and that is my story of my mother that's mm. how she died yeah it, not, it doesn't reflect her it was not her fault 
is not there was no bigger magical thing that was supposed to happen in my life because of that um and he doesn't deserve anything from me i don't have anything for him so i don't have to tell him i forgive him i, I would never i don't care what happens to that man people are like let's pray for them and wish them well mm, nah i'm good you <laughs> I don't have anything for you. I don't have yeah. I, none of that stuff works for me. I don't like it. You don't have to forgive because you can't forgive on purpose. And if you can't do it on yeah. purpose. And especially if it doesn't feel good. If you're in your yeah. body, you're just saying I need to forgive because that's what everybody's that's telling right. you to do. But if you're not ready, that's right. Then then it's okay for you not to be ready. That's right. And you're let's stop as a collective asking so much of the person who's burdened yeah don't put another thing on them like by the way when you're done having this horrible life could you just forgive would you just put it on the list you know it's like <laughs> listen I'm busy I have my yeah. own problems and I shouldn't be asked to do things that don't feel natural yeah so forgiveness came to me I only thought of it in hindsight I was like you know what? I actually think I think that's for oh my god I think I got there I yeah. got it because before I used to ask why, how, why would he do this? What is the point? How did you, how dare you? Oh my God. You know, we feel so righteous. Like you should suffer. I, I all is ill will to him. And I was really venomous in my thoughts about him. And mm -hmm. then when I was 25, I hated my life, man. I was having a hard time and they had moved him from the one facility, like a maximum security to a minimum security and the minimum security was not far from my house. And it threw me for an emotional mental loop, man. I was destroyed by this information. They call you. They have to tell you, hello, just so you know, your father now lives this area. And I'm like, what? Could this man please stop torturing me? There's nothing I want more than never to think about this man in my life again. So I started having PTSD episodes, waking up with nightmares, having like terror. I, I would see him. I would think I'd see him everywhere, right? Yeah. It's minimum security. He's allowed out for certain periods of time. Like it was freaking me out. So I went to the prison and I thought, I got to look this guy in the face. I don't know. Listen, that was one of the hardest things I've ever done. I don't recommend, I'm not recommending it to anyone else. I'm just saying like, I am crazy about healing. And so like, I was like, I want to look this man in the face and I want to ask him why he killed my mother. Woo. When I tell you that it was hard to go to that, that day was really hard. And I went there and you know what he said? I didn't kill your mother. Wow. I was like, part, pardon me. There were a lot of answers I expected and that wasn't one of them. And I thought, you don't, what? You don't admit that you killed her? He's like, no, I never did. I don't know who did it, but that's, I'm very sad. I was like, okay, well, I saw you. So. Yeah. And then he goes, no, you were just little. You don't know what you saw unbelievable so people can gaslight you even when <laughs> you were there and they killed someone and they can still gaslight you so you don't trust people that injure you so I kind of laughed to myself because I was so like laughed in like a shocking way like I was like ah, what? Ah, this guy what oh my god I'm like you're always full of surprises man and I thought I will never I was embarrassed. I was like, I can't believe I asked a crazy person for logic. Ooh, no. I love that. I cannot believe I went looking for logic at a murderer in prison. You know how stupid I am? 
That was so dumb. I was like, oh my God, oh my God, I feel embarrassed. I was like, wow, I will never, ever ask for confirmation of what I know. I will never look to you who hurt me to heal me. Mm. You don't have anything for me. And you have shown me my entire life that you are just here to destroy. And I will never come to you to build or heal or feel good and filled up. You are nothing but destruction. And I thought, why I ever would go to, you know what I mean? To a war asking for peace. Like, give me, oh, I slept, I laughed myself. I was like, "Uh -uh, uh-uh, uh-uh, thank you, thank you, goodbye. Yeah. And it was so healing. I have to say, because I just, it was the, the minute that I realized all my life, I was looking over my shoulder. This man ruled my decisions. He was in my brain. He, everything I did was about him, how I was afraid of him, how he changed my life. And I want any survivor to hear the people that hurt you aren't going to come and heal you. So you need to stop because it's very natural as a child to feel powerless, especially when someone destroys your life Mm -hmm. and your self-esteem. So you have this inherent, like, I'm not powerful because adults can come and molest me or or, right like do all this stuff abuse me kill people when you grow up you need to start telling yourself I am the most powerful person in my life they cannot if they came with pain and abuse they don't have anything good and they will not teach you anything good and even the most holy beautiful kind generous loving person in the world doesn't have your saving that's on you boo-boo you have that you have everything you need to thrive, to conquer, and to show us who you are. Oh, beautifully said. When I left that prison, I was like, that you ain't never coming anywhere I go again. I don't ever, like, you're not here anymore. You're not living in my head. It was me who got free from prison that day. Yeah, beautifully said. As we wrap up this episode, I wanted to ask you one last question. You know, what makes people, because you're obviously resilient, you've been through so much um, and you've had quite the fearless female journey. What makes people resilient and are there ways that we can build up our own resilience? Yes. I think defiance makes us resilient. I think we defy. We don't, I don't ever, if you tell me, no, I'll find another way. I'll look this way, that way. I'll build, I'll build something. I'll build a wall. I'll find a tunnel. Don't worry. I'll climb. I don't listen to the answer that I hear. I listen to the answer that I need to get to the next step. If Mm -hmm. I fall, which I expect to, because I'm very clumsy and I'm very slow. I will not give up. I will, I will not give up. I really am the most stubborn, defiant person. I'm so not ever going to do what you tell me I should do unless it lines up with what I say I'm going to do and what I want to do. So resilience is, I think it's feral. I think it's ferocity. I think it's defiance. I don't think it's in a pretty little bow of being like holy or anything. And I think you have to have faith in something and that you should believe what you feel here. I think this is, this is it. And so, yeah, just keep going and never not listen to anybody. Don't listen. Yeah, I love it because it is. This is your guiding light, your soul, your heart, your path. And it's like you just got to listen to it instead of trying to listen to everyone oh. else or trying to people please. Or I know because I do yes. that myself. <laughs> yes, recovering people pleasing is a thing, you know? Yeah, exactly. So what is your nugget of wisdom that you would leave for the women today? 
Pay attention to how you feel around people. Pay attention to when you're putting on the masks and when you're shrinking. And you ever go home and you go, I don't even know why I was acting so I was acting weird around them. I don't know why I wasn't myself. Pay attention to that that intuition feeling because that's your nervous system really starting to like warn you that you're not safe to be yourself around those people. And you need to find people that reflect your greatness, that reflect the light that is already shining. It's just like lighthouses that meet in the night and they cry, hey, hey, those are the people that you connect with that resonate with you because they are also connected to their greatness. So no one has anything for you out there. But when you find good people, it's because they're shining back to you that they see you too, boo, you know? Oh, I love that. So that's what I hope for women, especially follow that gut. Don't you ever, you know, believe anyone over you. So how can my audience find you? I know you're on TikTok, but where else are you? <laughs> so everywhere with my name. So Iman Getty on TikTok and Facebook. I love TikTok and I like Facebook and I like uh, Instagram the least, but I'm there still. Yeah. You can find my website, imangetty.com. And you've written a book, correct? I have written four books. I have a, a my best-selling memoir, Cracked Open, Never Broken. Because that's why I used to think I was broken, but then I realized that's just the crack, the crack, I cracked open. <laughs> so, the, and then I wrote three children's books for my daughter. And I'm, I'm writing a book right now about my mom. So I don't, can't wait to share it with you. Beautiful. Thank you again. Thank you for having me. Thank you again for listening to Journey of a Fearless Female. I'm your host, Paola Rosser. If you love this episode, make sure to share it with your friends. You can find me on the internet at fearlessfemale.com, on Facebook, The Fearless Female Movement, on Instagram, at Fearless Female Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. And ladies, remember, we have the power to rise and face everything. Until next week, goodbye. Goodbye.